0: Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions.
1: So what's your Delta MGH Institute's three tips for faculty development? You're here with Janice Palaganos and
0: Peter Kahn. And Janice, I'm reminded that we titled this podcast a while ago. And unless someone's listened to all the episodes, they may miss the reference. I had someone say, what's a Delta?
1: Well, this is um, this entire podcast series is mainly around faculty development. And Peter, you're gonna have to refresh me how we even came up with this. But basically we had talked about a Delta meaning change and we keep talking about, you know, what are some three high-level tips that faculty can either walk away with or they can walk away with to develop other faculty. So three tips and we thought, you know, each point of the triangle.
0: I think you're exactly right. It had to do with riffing on a triangle. And I was talking about my woeful lack of experience in media, except for some training I received in one workshop that talked about the communication triangle, which is not as grandiose as what what we turned it into. It was about if you're talking to media, you know, have one point, a second point and three points, then go back and then a repeating triangle, just because academics have a way of rambling on and on. But we took it in this idea of a triangle as a delta, a change that you want to enact in your practice and your attitudes of health professions education. And then the three came from that.
1: It is really ac- academic in that way. Like it, as we are talking about this right now, I'm thinking of all of the different academic or educational conceptual development models that appear as triangles. So um, for our listeners, I'm pretty excited to talk and introduce our guest today, Susie Cardon edgren my good friend, colleague and mentor in many ways and Susie works with me in the MGH-IHP Health Professions Education Program. She's an associate professor, and Susie's really been on the forefront of research in simulation over for over now, 10 years. It's got to be more than that, Susie, and did a lot of early research in VR, virtual reality, and how education is essentially going to change with simulation. And Susie, you and I met. We were swimming circles for a while, and I think I really got to know you when I invited you to be a keynote at one of my conferences in California to talk about research and simulation. And that was in I want to say it was like two thousand seven, eight. I can't even remember anymore. I think it was two thousand six. I don't even know. It was that early though?
2: I don't remember when it was either. But but it was my first trip to Loma Linda. And it was a beautiful place. And Dan Raymer was buzzing around you like a bee around the flower is what I, my perception was because he was busy recruiting you for CMS. <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of other stuff going on that had nothing to do with the conference. So it was very obvious to me. So I just thought, you know, stay hi, stay out of the way because there's there are other big doings going on here. I could just see it.
1: Little did we know Susie that, uh, you know, come 2000. 20, whenever we started working together. Even earlier, I think 2019, you and I would start working together at the Center for Medical Simulation. So so welcome. And I'm really excited to have you talking with us today. And Peter and I have a lot of questions because we know you've done a lot of work in this.
0: can I just start with a trajectory question? Because I didn't know that (laughs) intersection that the two of you had back in California. I just know that you came to us most recently from Texas. In fact, I believe you're still based in Texas. Mm-hmm. So what, what's been the pathway to get you to, at least virtually, the MGH Institute?
2: My last two jobs have been completely by accident. Being in the right place at the right time is somebody kind of sidled up to me and said something. And for this job at uh, IHP, I happen to be walking up to Janice at, at, as I was um, helping teach at CMS one day. She was talking to Roger about this new doctoral program and simulation that they were going to get off the ground. And my ears perked up as they did for a, a previous job. And I said, so tell me about that. What are you doing? I'm butting in where I shouldn't be. And they said, well, yeah, we're going to do this. I said, I would love to teach in that because I've always known that a, a doctorate with a simulation focus would be needed and who was going to be there who were going to be the first people to do it was really the question so when i realized that janet was uh janice was working on that i thought oh i'd like to be in on that so kind of threw my hat in the ring that was two years prior to the december with this last december when I, i started with you all so it was two years in the making and again completely by happenstance, right place, right time. If I'd been there two minutes earlier, two minutes later, I wouldn't have heard the key phrase. So I'm a big believer in um, Providence.
0: Could you go a little farther back for me? So oh, you were, your
1: entire it, trajectory. I would love or, to or hear. Or just a,
0: a little schematic, because you were not at an institute of higher education before here. You were a hospital-based researcher, as oh, I recall. Man,
2: it was such a horrible, can I say this? It you was, can. I, it was such a, it wasn't a horrible experience. I was like a fish out of water. I I had worked in the hospital world for 17 years before I ever redarkened the door of academia to get my master's degree. And I loved getting my master's. And I thought, well, I'm gonna go ahead and get my PhD. And so then I got sucked into academia Moved back to Texas and for whatever reason, just could not find a job. Nobody, nobody would even interview me, which I thought, this is really weird. But a part of it is how you have to, I'm sure, nobody wants to talk to you ever as a real human first. You have to go through human resources and put all your stuff in first. And then you just go into the morass of with everybody else. And the first people who jumped on board were a friend of mine that I had taught with before at a big university here. Uh, said, we've got this nurse uh, scientist job at the hospital, and I thought, well, that could be kind of fun. I'll go back and I'll go back into the hospital and help with that. Well, that was great. It was certainly interesting. And then COVID hit and basically shut down. What do I want to say? Basically, nurse scientists in the hospitals in this area are hired to um, help with the magnet status. And the idea is that the local nurses in the hospital are supposed to come up with research ideas. And then the nurse scientist is to help them enact that, which is basically the same job I had at um, in another university where I was an endowed chair in nursing. And my job was to help people with their scholarly pursuits, which is about the best job on the planet. So it sounded like that same kind of job. But when COVID hit, you kind of go into Maslow's hierarchy of needs and really doing your a high level uh, thinking and, and scholarly pursuits was not what was on people's minds. They were in food, clothing, shelter, and survival. So I did that for many, many months. And I finally said, you're paying me very well to do basically nothing. And I said, I just, I'm the last of the baby boomers. I can't do that. And so when this job finally opened up, your job opened up at IHP, it was a godsend and the right time. Absolutely. And I am sure that my boss was delighted to get me off their books because there were a lot of us and uh, scientists and we're paying us well to to not do a whole lot. So I'm sure I was a a great help to the hospital system. And so that's Mm -hmm. how I I ended up here.
0: I see. Now, because I want to get into your... Your sort of milestone research on simulation education, but just to put some context, in your hospital role, were you also working with nursing and other health profession students who would rotate through?
2: No, not at all, because that really wasn't my role. It really is helping nurses with their scholarly pursuits. One of the the studies that we actually got through to completion during the time of COVID and very little research has been done in major disasters during the time of the disaster because I had to do the lit review to figure out what else had been done. And the most common research at that that time is really it was during the uh, earthquakes in the Middle East. Those nurses actually had the bandwidth to be able to do some kinds of things, but it's really on the survival of the nurses there and the stresses that they're going through. So we had a aromatherapy group that invented little nasal inhalers to be used by nurses on the COVID units to help them with the stress of dealing with COVID. It was very akin to when we didn't really know what was happening with HIV and you had to put on a full moon suit to be able to go into any HIV patient's room. I was doing agency nursing at that time, so I know how stressful that was. And it was, and I, the agency nurses always got the HIV patients early on because we didn't know what was happening and how contagious things were. So it was easier to sacrifice the hired help than it was the nurses in the hospital. So uh, that was, I was very aware of what that was like for the nurses on the floors that were dealing with the COVID at that time. So this made no significant difference. It really was a placebo effect. So when people were smelling really good stuff, it could have been probably almost anything It made them feel calmer as they were doing their work so it was it was an interesting finding.
0: Let, let me ask one more background question. This is my opportunity to I insert my personal anecdote because I hadn't met Susie before she started and then we had to check in after your orientation. Uh-huh. I loved you we got on the zoom and you we looked at each other and you said, "Well do we do small talk or just get to the point?" <laughs> I said, I like this, this approach.
1: That is for you.
0: (laughs) I said, let's just do 30 seconds of small talk just to make sure you're doing okay. And then we can get to it. So I I don't want to make you more reflective than you feel comfortable, but can you talk about your own nursing education? And did you experience simulation as a learner along the way?
2: Okay. No, I am old enough that I am of the era of the static mannequins for skills, which was fine. And to give the shot, you had the orange. And the reason that orange worked is because it actually does feel like what it feels like going through human skin, et cetera. So, what you know, and a lot of times what's old is new again. Those practice pads, which you can buy, cost a small fortune, and an orange probably works just as well. So, the way I got involved in simulation was at University of Texas Arlington. And I was working with now another famous simulationist, Dr. Mindy Anderson, who was in grad school at that point, becoming a nurse practitioner, but she led the physical assessment course. And I was the director of the program. And so my teaching load was in that assessment course. And the graduate school had won a grant that allowed them to buy one of the at that time quarter of a million dollar big CAE it looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger in a coffin arrives at your doorstep with a manual that was literally three inches thick that that makes him run because he was built with the physiological program that mimics actual human behavior what was really funny is that the graduate school opened up the the crate that he arrived in looked at it and said we don't have time for this close the crate shoved it into the corner (laughs) Mindy Anderson opened up the crate and said I know there's a pony in here somewhere, dug out that mannequin, read the manual, fired him up, and we started using him in, in our physical assessment class. And this was back in the times when uh, you had the things that were clear plastic that you what, do you what did you call those things that you fed through the thing so that you could they were like became like slides for you and you could put them on an overhead projector. What were I can't remember what they were called. But,
0: Transparencies.
2: Called. Transparencies. Transparencies. We would go online, which is still pretty new then for on Google, and we would find pictures of things like malignant melanomas, transfer them onto the transparencies, cut them out and glue and stick them on the mannequins to do things like when you were assessing skin, hair, nails. You could put a a bed sore in somebody's coccyx. You could put malignant melanoma on an arm. Uh, We spent hours gluing little pieces of rice to a wig to simulate nits in somebody's hairline from lice. And we would put this on and then send the students in for 15 minutes to assess this mannequin for each of the different systems that we were teaching in physical assessment. And so there was no way to, to use SIM. We were literally building that airplane as we were flying it. So we were just making stuff up and having a great time doing it and got became that group that really started using simulation. We were using a $250,000 mannequin, like a static mannequin, because we didn't know what else to do. And then we fired them up and used heart sounds, lung sounds, bowel sounds. We did those things and tested people and could they understand what they were listening to, which was interesting, very avant-garde for the time. But we kind of built out simulation from there moving forward. We were literally building the science. And I remember, Janice, I don't know if you were going to IMSH back when we had debates on should you kill the mannequin or not and a lot of times it was funny debate ha 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 we had no no idea how terrible that actually was and that we were really uh, playing with people's psyches and how powerful this method of learning really was so we've come a long 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 way since then but again uh, we were some of the early nursing users of simulation and some of the people who did some of the really horrible things to people and then figured out how horrible that really was and uh, built backwards from there.
1: And the mannequins have changed too.
2: (laughs) And they don't cost quite so much now.
1: You know, I do, I do feel like the world still, you know, if there's one message I want to get out to simulationists, the world still relies so much on industry. And I just you know, remember those days and you would just go to Home Depot and, you know, going on accreditation site visits, I see people, you know, integrating their biomedical engineering students to come in to develop models that you could hybridize your mannequins with. And they just seem more real than what industry had at the time. It was like, I feel like it stifles our creative, our creativity and simulation when we're just constantly looking at catalogs and waiting for the next, you know, industry simulator when you can build it yourself. Absolutely. And there
2: are so many great examples of people doing that now. I can remember when, uh, what's his name? It's escaping me right now, was talking about they were starting a new program in nursing and entrepreneurism and innovation. And I said, isn't that kind of antithetical? Nurses don't do that. I said, that's why some of us are, don't really fit well in the mold I said, but is that really, yeah, nursing innovation. I said, oxymoronic, really? And I think that there are those rebels who are able to break through now if they are in the right school and can survive what we do to them. There are more now than there were, but we are not necessarily a a creative lot in certain areas. We are in other ways, but simulation really does attract people that are willing to break the mold and try new things, I think very consistently.
0: I wonder if you can tell us about the genesis for the study about simulation versus clinical placement. That's something Uh that I heard about when I first came to an institution with the School of Nursing now nine years ago. They were talking about the difficulty of finding clinical placements. And even when you do, there's no guarantee that the right learning opportunity is going to roll in the door. I was so pleased to hear someone had done that study. How did that first come about?
2: What had happened from the National Council side was that more and more boards were being confronted by programs that wanted to do 50% simulation, 100% simulation, precisely because they couldn't find clinical sites, especially for OB and pediatrics, because people aren't having babies as often as they used to. And if you're in the wrong part of the country... Uh, in the wrong school, you might have to drive 150 miles to get to a hospital that might have a delivery on a day or during the the two weeks or three weeks that you're having clinical for OB or pediatrics. They were, they were asked to uh, provide some guidance on this. Well, there really wasn't anything because most of the studies at that time were small, single site, not randomized. A lot of times, not a great study design. So they were asked to do something about this. Jennifer Hayden, who was the person who was tasked with doing this study, I guess was reading clinical simulation and nursing and had read several of our studies and I got a call. I was sitting in my office at my university at that time as a little snot nosed assistant professor, you know, how you're like worrying about tenure and what, what am I going to do and how, how am I going to do this? And I got this call and, I, and it's Jennifer on the phone. And she said, we would like for you to consult on this study. And this is what it's going to be about. And of course, my eyes went gigantic. And I thought, oh, my God. I said, how do you even know who I am? And she said, well, you're the editor of this journal and you, we've read your stuff and we really like what you're doing. And I said, oh, that's when I really understood the, um, the power of writing and getting getting your work out there. And then being an editor, of course, which was quite an honor, but uh, a really powerful position. And again, it didn't register with me at the time, but I really, that moment, I got it. And uh, she said, You'll be working with Pam Jeffries. You two are the ones we're going to get to do this. And I thought, Okay, I'm, I'm okay. So I had, to, they said, What is your fee? And I said, uh, Can I get back with you on that? And ran down the hallway to our um, Dean for Research. And I said, I got this call it's going to be a landmark study. What do, what do I say? And he said, okay, this is what you say, blah, 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 blah. And I knew at that moment I've got tenure. And at the same time I'd been called to do a four-year study for a big mannequin company. And I I knew, okay, I can, I'm, I'm gravy from here on in. And basically between that grant, this study, all I did for the next four years for my time, literally for tenure at that place was Fly around the country having a great time talking, teaching one course in nursing theory for the graduate program. And I said, you do know my doctor, it's not in nursing, right? And they said, that's why you're perfect for teaching the theory class. And it wasn't because I wouldn't take it seriously, but it would because I wasn't so married to nursing theories, I was really more willing to talk about all kinds of theories that might be used in, in nursing or research or whatever. So all of that came to pass that study was really big it was the largest nursing education study ever done probably the most expensive nursing education study ever done and at the end of it they said and we're never going to do another one we know what we need to know about simulation years passed and uh, i was on another call with some with one of these people from the national council and they said we've been trying to get a hold of you we can't find you where are you i was in the hospital i said well i'm right here on this call now so you can ask me whatever you want and they said we're going to do another simulation study And there was this pregnant pause because I knew they didn't ever want to do another one. But they said people are doing so much screen based simulation now and using so many of these store bought programs, uh, commercially prepared programs. computer-based programs for simulation because there's been nothing else that was available during the time of COVID. The boards are asking us to do another study now. So we're going to do a national simulation study 2.0. And uh, we've asked you and Pam again to come on board to help with this. Plus a group that I had been doing research with where we demonstrated that you really can count two hours of traditional clinical clinical in the hospital for one hour of mannequin based simulation because it's so much more intense, it's so much more focused. You really get a lot of bang for the buck out of your time uh, with mannequin based simulation in a simulation center. So we had completed that research, published it, and they brought that team on board also to help with this study. So kickoff date for that is fall 2022. Uh, They're running a study right now. Just to try to get some baseline data because both medicine and nursing are concerned about a, basically almost a lost class of students that were trying to finish up during COVID. And they want to see how much damage was done, literally, to education and what did they get out of all of the stuff that we were basically making it up as we went along. So they're going to have the data from that study, which should finish up, I want to say this May or June, they'll crunch that data. That will be used to inform this larger study moving forward.
0: Well, if we could walk back to that largest, most expensive study ever done to date, what were the outcomes and then what was the reaction in the health professions education community?
2: What was really interesting was the best outcome politically for the time happened. And that was there really was no significant difference in total between the groups that were in fifty percent simulation during the time they were in school versus thirty percent, versus twenty five percent, versus ten percent, which was considered uh, condition normal. So that was great because if fifty percent had blown everybody out of the water, I'm sure people would have been up in arms and critiqued the study much more than they did. But the best outcome for that time was, and it really did turn out that way was that really there was no difference. This group, all of these schools were offered the opportunity to be followed into the worksite for six months and continue in another phase two part of the study. So a large number of students did. And as they graduated in that first six week period, the 50% group were much more confident and were willing to step forward and do things than the 25 percent group and the 10 percent group were uh, sometimes to their, you know, because they were really strong and sometimes because they didn't know that they didn't know. But they had a lot of confidence, which is not unusual. By the six month part, everybody was pretty much the same. And there really was no significant difference between people who'd been in the normal group, the 25 percent group, the 50 percent group. So, again, no, no huge differences were found.
0: And then all nursing schools rushed to change to 50% simulation, right?
2: No, no. And they couldn't because we had to find schools that had enough bandwidth to be able to run. At some some points in some of these schools, they had three or four clinical groups at the same time that had 50% groups, 25% groups, and 10% groups. And that's a lot of simulation space. And the same clinical people that we trained to be in the study to run and debrief the scenarios had to do them all. We did not train everybody. We couldn't. So those people were running ragged. A lot of those people did, you know, 12 and 14 hours of SIM back to back, to back, to back all day long to get that study done. So it was, it was murder on them. It was, it was really a lot of work. They also would probably run more simulation at that time in a two year period than anybody else in the United States in nursing education ever had. And they were using a standardized briefing uh, methodology. We used uh, Chris Dreyfus' debriefing for meaningful learning, which was fine.
1: You know, one of the outcomes from that study was that there was an imposition on nursing faculty to start using simulation for their teaching. And the big caveat that was missing that that the report clearly points out, but was overlooked by nursing leadership is that all of these results are with trained simulation educators. And so here some institutions were just having their faculty who were not trained. And there are skills around running simulations, developing simulations and debriefing skills that some of these faculty didn't have as they were asked to start doing simulations. And so you start seeing simulations that actually could have the opposite effect.
2: Well, the same thing is going to happen all over again, unfortunately. So that happened then. And what we're really saying is that people were able to get money for a mannequin, but there usually is no money for training. So people made it up and they found a way that in their minds as educators work for them, They're very happy with what they're doing. They may not have ever been to a real formal training of any sort. They might not have read a lot of stuff, not been to a conference, but they know what they know. And now that we have all of these standards, we know so much more. There's a whole body of knowledge around how to really do simulation well. The same thing has happened all over again with screen-based SIMS during the time of COVID. We found a way, and it's cheaper, so I am very concerned about what is going to happen in schools now. Of nursing, especially uh, OTPT, not s- some, but not as much as nursing, because we really relied on this. Of course, we'll always be the largest end users of sim, just by sheer size and numbers of people that we train. But people found a way to theoretically deal with meeting clinical requirements by using screen-based scenario in one way and scenarios in one way or another, be it commercially prepared products or screen-based using the Brady Bunch group with all of us with our little tiles here on the screen and all of us showing up. People got forced into doing SIM that really know nothing about it. They're, they're doing it now. They probably have found a way that they think works for them. And I don't know how much evaluation has been done. So we're basically at the same point all over again. And I think a lot of people think they're going to have regression to the mean. We're all going to go back to the way things were. I don't think budgets or administration are going to be allowed to let that happen. So there's a lot of new research that's going to have to happen now about what this screen-based stuff is doing and what are the best practices for that. So I think what's old is new again, and we're going to have to reevaluate what we're doing. But there's, there's a whole new group of people coming up that are going to need dissertations and research. So we've got lots of opportunity.
0: Now, I know you're focused on the controlled study base, but I wonder, to what extent are you running into cultural barriers? of people who think well clinical placements is just the way we've always done it people that's how nurses are made there's this ineffable part of professional identity development that happens by shadowing someone in a clinical site
2: um agree 100% with you there's all kinds of people who believe that so a couple friends well and uh, Janice uh, pals around with uh, Kim Layton also but we sat around one day and said, well, everybody holds up clinical, traditional clinical as the gold standard. Well, I knew from our little study of the two to one ratio that there's a lot. There's not lots of stand around time, but 70 percent of your time in a typical uh, clinical day is you're not doing much of anything. You're kind of waiting for something to happen or for your instructor to get there to help you, you know, or see you do something. So uh, we had that data. We knew that Kim and I were sitting around one day and said, why is this the gold standard? Why do we say these things? And it really comes down to a term that I found by accident. It's eminence versus evidence and that we've always said this. This is the gold standard. This is the gold standard. So we said, well, what how, how is that possible? So we did a lit review. We got a professional librarian. We got somebody who has a vested interest in clinical outcomes being the best, Dr. Angie McNellis, who has really questioned traditional clinical as we know it. And we did this big lit review on what are the documented objective outcomes of traditional clinical. And we did this giant review and there aren't any. It's called an empty review. Our librarian had to tell us, she said, you found an empty review. We said, what does that mean? She said, there aren't any articles. And we said, well, how is that even possible? She said, it's, it's really not because empty reviews are something that librarians find when a topic is too new. There's not enough out there. Like we might find that right now for screen-based simulation and teaching. That might happen there, but it shouldn't happen with traditional clinical. There should be some published objective outcomes and there aren't zero. There were four studies that we could, if we squinted and looked really hard, that we could say maybe kind of almost, but not really. This meets the criteria. So we were generous and talked about those. We uh, That paper's published. It raised quite a stink and we've got a little subgroup now that's working on something coming out of that. But we also then sat around and said, well, maybe the, re- uh, the outcomes are really based in the qualitative literature. So we did a lit review on that, and they're not really there either. So that article is in review right now. But we're we did our due diligence. We really wanted to make a case for a traditional clinical. But a lot of us who love traditional clinical are remembering the time pre-electronic health record, pre-HIPAA, pre-a lot of things. The world that I grew up with uh, doing my clinical rotations, and I, I probably for Janice too, is not the world that exists now in the hospital. So I think that... the. The how to get things done in a hospital really will be learned in the traditional clinical environment. But the other things that we value clinical for really can really today only happen in a simulation lab or in a simulated environment of one sort or another. So I think that people are going to have to, I hate to say this, but it's true, die or retire uh, before the big change can happen. But that's true with a lot of academia, as we know.
0: I guess we'll just close with your next steps. You, you've mentioned that their dissertation is yet to be written, and we have a doctoral program with lots of PhD students looking for topics. So, what are some of the unanswered questions that you're most excited to dig into?
2: If we had students who are willing to really look at screen based simulations, the tiles that we're seeing that we can see right here, but they're not going to see on a podcast, um, those kind of scenarios where we are uh, distance based simulations, what are the strengths and weaknesses of those things, I think, are are as yet unknown. And I think we need to figure that out because, again, we're going to have to do a lot of this This is the first pandemic in 100 years. These variants may create other opportunities for us to lock down. Who knows? We have to have other new ways of doing clinical as we know it. I think virtual reality will probably be a stronger way to educate than uh, screen-based, two-dimensional. I think VR is going to be really big. The person who breaks the haptic glove problem and can produce less than $15,000 a pair of haptic gloves that will be available to the general populace will be a very wealthy person. I think that all of those things and new ways as yet, we we haven't even seen them yet of educating are gonna start coming fast and furious and we're gonna need to be evaluating them to keep up and to find best practices.
1: 100% agree. So if you want my three tips, he has.
0: Oh. I,
2: I
1: wrote them down
2: as we were as we were talking. I think as we're all in uncharted waters when we're working with students at this point, I think it's hard for a lot of us to admit to students we're in uncharted waters. We're trying something new. We want to seek your feedback about your perceptions of how this went, good, bad, or indifferent. I think we need to be really talking about minute papers or verbal feedback, thumbs up, thumbs down after an exercise of one sort or another, and be able to hear the feedback. Because we are doing a lot of new things, we have to value our learners' opinions on what seems to be working and what doesn't seem to be working. So I think that is a huge tip, number one. Tip number two is really do be open to new things and it's okay to say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm willing to give it a try and say, you know, help me help you. Let's all help each other here and give grace as we're trying out new things. Invariably, there's always a student who's going to make, you know, make your life hell because you said this is new and I'm, I'm new at this. And we have to realize that sometimes those tails on either end of the uh, the bell curve, you can just kind of drop and kind of go with a hunk in the middle for feedback. And I and then I say, I think my third tip would be again number two, written even larger, is that be open to trying new things because the world has changed, I think forever, and it's not a bad thing that that has happened. I don't think.
0: And I would just add one thing you said that illustrates the idea of being open is sharing your experiences through what you say is the power of writing, even when it's a negative result. Absolutely. Empty review, that's valuable to others. Or when it's something that contradicts the perceived wisdom, like that simulation study, that by putting your experiences and your analysis out there, you open yourself up to new opportunities and new scholarly conversations?
2: I guess what we're really talking about is developing a growth mindset, which we wish our students would have so they wouldn't concentrate so much on grades. But we as faculty also have to have a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset, which is this is the way it's always been. I, I want to succeed within these parameters only. We need to be willing to try and fail. And it needs to be OK with administration for us to try and fail and be able to let people have the grace and goodness to be able to do that. So uh, great opportunity all the way around.
1: I like that. And, you know, it ties very nicely with your eminence versus evidence and to challenge, the eminence that is out there and also to stay creative. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. So I, we're so grateful you opened up the coffin and pulled the Schwarzenegger uh-huh. out. <laughs> ah,
1: so Believe crazy. me. There was this whole quote way back in the day, free the mannequins from the boxes. <laughs> people didn't know that it takes fte behind every mannequin that's exactly
2: right We didn't build that into the ground we didn't know it's so funny thank Thank you so much for sharing i loved this okay thank you guys thanks for the opportunity
0: yeah i appreciate it Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host Janice Palaganis and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions.